For our scripture reading this morning, um, instead of me or any one or two people reading it, we're going to turn to the back of the hymnal where there are various responsive readings. And the general theme of um, these weeks of preaching and leading up to Easter, the Lenten season, you might say, relates to uh, Christ's sufferings, his passion, and his death. And one of the most outstanding places in all of Scripture where we find a prophecy related to that is in Isaiah 53. And that is uh, where, uh, uh, where, what this passage is relating to. So back in the hymnal, number 639, if you happen to be there. And if you would please stand, and I'll read the light print, and if you could all respond by reading the dark print. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Let us pray. O oh God, we stand amazed concerning this uh, stunning prophecy. Um, relevant to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So many details here were very literally fulfilled in the coming of your Son, and particularly in that last week of his earthly life, his dying on the cross in our stead. And Lord, we want to continue to look anew at this amazing mystery of love, and therefore, I pray that you would grant us help through the power of the Holy Spirit that I would be faithful uh, in carrying out the charge given me to proclaim your truth. And may we together as people take home to our hearts and our lives the message that you have for us 
Lord, you, there are many different people here today, and I have no power in and myself to rightly speak to any, but you do, Lord, and we praise you for that reality. So work, we pray, to the glory of your name and for our true good, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, your dear Son, amen. Please be seated. As I look out before you um, this morning, I can't help but think of the fact that represented here in our group are many different kinds of, of, of pain and suffering. And there was a little bit that we heard there from Nancy that pertains to another portion of our world, which is far worse off, physically speaking, materially, than our own land. But think of it, and I dare say that almost everyone here this morning can probably, if you were to be asked what kind of suffering or pain you might be experiencing, could say something. There's physical pain, that's very clear, but there's also mental and emotional pain, there's relational pain, there's spiritual pain and suffering that, that we experience. So what are you experiencing this morning? Now relevant to my observation, though, is the very reality of Jesus Christ. And I just want to offer to you a couple of statements in God's Word that make it clear that Jesus Christ was not an individual who was apart from suffering. For instance, Isaiah 53, verse 3, the chapter that we just read, we find this statement concerning Jesus prophetically, that he would be a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And then just to give one other example, in Hebrews chapter 2, 17 and 18, we read of Jesus that he was made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, my friends, Jesus Christ suffered throughout the entirety of his life but his sufferings were most decided and most excruciating toward the end. That last week or so, the final few days. And he experienced all different kinds of suffering. When we began this series, we focused on the issue of relational suffering connected with his betrayal by Judas, as well as in a lesser way by the other disciples. And then last week, we focused on what we might call emotional, mental suffering connected with the mockery that came Jesus' way. He was taunted. He was scoffed at. He was ridiculed. These things as a human being, no doubt, 
came home to him and would have hurt, and hurt deeply. But now today, our attention is going to be on the very physical nature of Jesus' suffering. Gary was speaking of the various senses that we have, physical senses as human beings, of hearing and sight and touch and taste and all. And Jesus' suffering was of a very physical nature. And we're going to center our attention on one particular aspect of that in the final uh, hours of Jesus, and that concerns the flogging, the flogging that he underwent. I want to simply remind you right now, and I'm going to emphasize it, of course, later, that the suffering of Jesus, praise God, was not without purpose, because the overarching theme of these weeks when we consider the sufferings of Jesus is well represented in 2 Corinthians 8-9, where we read, For your sake He, Jesus, became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. So even though, my friends, we are going to consider very sober, solemn things this morning, it's to the intent, ultimately, that we might own afresh the wonders of God's grace and love to people like us, very poor in and of ourselves due to our sin. Okay, so we're going to take a few moments here to reflect upon a very somber situation, but yet it is mentioned in the Scriptures and it's worth our meditation. The fact of Jesus enduring a very, very terrible flogging. The beating. The whipping. Now, interestingly, in the Gospels, almost every time he predicted his death, he referred to flogging. For instance, in Mark 10, 34, we read, concerning the Jewish authorities, that they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, we looked at last week, and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. We read of the flogging itself in John 19, verse 1, which tells us that then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, apparently, Pilate had hoped, <laughs> apparently, you know, we put the things together here in the story, Pilate had hoped that maybe the people, the jeering crowds who were bloodthirsty and wanting, wanting this judgment to come on Jesus, that maybe he could be flogged and that might be it. Well, that proved not to be the case. The people were not satisfied by the mere flogging of Jesus, but of course, things went right on to the crucifixion itself. Now, normally, in those days, a flogging did precede a crucifixion, and it was meant to intensify the suffering of the victim. Now, let me just share 
a little bit of the detail of what went on in this connection. And my purpose, my intention is far this morning from wanting to be morbid in any way. And yet, again, it is recorded in Scripture and therefore something worth pondering. Back in those days then, when a flogging took place, the nature of the, of the scourge or the whip was, and it was called a flagellum. It was a short whip with thongs, leather thongs, and interwoven into the thongs were hard objects like lead balls or sheep bones or sometimes pieces of glass. So this just wasn't an ordinary leather whip. It had these items interwoven into them. The victim, the one who was to be scourged, would be stripped of all his clothing normally and then tied to a post with his hands above him and normally he would be stretched out to such a degree that his feet would even be a little bit above the ground. And one of the things that that accomplished was that that meant that the backside of the person would be taut. The skin would be, would be completely taut. And when the scourging took place, sometimes there would be one scourge bearer, or he was called a lictor, the one who did the beating, but often there were two on either side of the one who was being scourged. And these individuals were normally very skilled in what they did. They were able to take their flagellum and they were able to whip the individual with incredible force and accuracy <coughs> and up and down the backside, the person would be whipped. And there would then very literally appear on the back stripes. And isn't it interesting that in Isaiah 54, 3 or 4, the passage, the, the one particular passage we're centering on, that it's in the NIV it says, by his wounds we have been healed, but the more literal rendering is by his stripes we have been healed. And so the beating would proceed. And the skin would be torn away step by step. And then often after that, underlying muscles would be deeply lacerated. And then it was not uncommon for the beating to proceed with even deeper wounds, penetrating perhaps the area of the kidneys or other parts of the body lacerating deeper arteries, and there would then often be such severe loss of blood and such extreme shock that would come to the person's system that sometimes that would be the point of death right then and there. That was not usually the design. The soldiers doing the beating, the lictors, their basic design was 
to indeed punish the victim, but then there would supposedly be enough strength, as it were, to endure the cross itself. My friends, Jesus underwent this. There are some, I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of this right now, there are some scholars who think that Jesus might have uh, undergone two floggings, not just one. But be that as it may, it apparently was severe enough that when Jesus was crucified with the others, he expired more quickly than many would have thought. And therefore, the indication is that he indeed underwent a very, very excruciating beating. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to share briefly with you three points of meditation related to this. I hope you'll take what we're talking about even beyond our service today and maybe ponder these things even more on your own. Let me go through these fairly quickly. This first point is something that is maybe especially heavy to express, um, but I felt drawn to it, and I, so I want to make this point. May this, the reality of Jesus' flogging, picture for us, first of all, the great evil of sin. You know, the whole crucifixion story should remind us of how wretchedly evil human beings can be. Now, sometimes the question arises, well, who was responsible for the crucifixion and the death of Jesus? And there have been debates, and you probably heard them, you know, well, the Jews, were they the ones mainly involved or responsible? Well, what about the Romans and their place and the Gentiles? And to me, there's a deeper issue, and that is that on a deeper level, we all were there in spirit, all of us contributing, as it were, to this hideous scene by our own sin. We use the word sin, and sometimes it comes off our tongues way too quickly and lightly. And let me remind you a little bit here of what the essence of sin really is. I have a book of uh, quotations that are taken from various Christian leaders down through time, and I find it helpful sometimes to read the quotations related to different topics, and not just for sermon preparation, but really just related to my own meditation. And here are a few statements that are definitions of sin that relate to what I'm talking about. I'll read some of these. They're very short definitions. Sin is God's would-be murderer. Every sin is an election of the devil to be our Lord. These are heavy definitions. Sin is a clenched fist and a blow in the face of God. If sin had its way, it would both dethrone and annihilate God. See, this is the essence of sin. It is to get at the person of God. 
And Charles Spurgeon put it this way, sin is Christ-icide. You know, when we say suicide, murder of the self, or side, we speaks of murder, but sin is Christ-icide. An attempt, as it were, to murder Christ. So here, my friends, what I'm getting at, as I think of this whole incident of flogging, is one way to picture the reality of sin. You know, leading up to this, perhaps you've, you've all, we've all been to fairs before or um, places where uh, maybe there is a friend or somebody that's, you know, where there are these, these dunking pools and there's a person that is seated on a chair over a pool and you come up and, and you throw balls at a target and your purpose is to hit the target and the, the, the seat gives way and into the water goes the person who's there. And you know how people line up for that kind of thing and it's usually a lot, of, it's all in fun. But we line up and maybe you're going to get a couple of tosses and hopefully you can hit that target. But what I'm talking about here is something far more far more uh, weighty and, and, and evil. Because when I think of the issue of sin, my friends, and this is the picture that I'm getting, it's as it were, when we sin against God, and the essence of sin against is to get at God, it's as it were, let me have the flagellum. Give the whip to me. Let me have at his back. Is that too serious? I mean, is that too off-base a thing to think about? I don't think so. And sometimes I believe the Lord can help catch me short when I, when I try to picture things that way. That sin is, as it were, give me the whip. Or give me the hammer so I can whack, take a whack at the nails. I just want to ask a very brief question of you this morning, and that is this. Are you this day, any of you, any of us, my friends, any of us, are you this day plotting any course of sin in your life? And I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning, but there might be something you've been kind of plotting in your heart that is clearly wrong against God, some course of sin something that is clearly against God. If that's true, may God catch you, as it were, with this very point we're pondering, that when we sin, it's as it were, this kind of deliberate sin that I'm talking about, it's like taking the flagellum and saying, let me have a whack at Jesus. May God lead us away by all means, from that. But now, friends, we come to the second point, and this is where the, we turn the corner, as it were, because you know what a lot of people might think is, and when you think about the image, you might think to yourself, well, Pastor, I'm the type of person, it's true, over the course of my life, there have been so many occasions when, as it were, I have taken the flagellum 
and had a whip at Jesus' back. I have done it again and again and again, and surely there could be no hope for me. Well, this is where we turn the corner, and we recognize in the second place, the second thing I want to bring out, may this, this whole incident, picture for us the healing love of Jesus. Because what does it say again in Isaiah 53, 5? It says, by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. You know, it is very interesting that earlier in the book of Isaiah, our condition as sinners is described in terms of wounds. Let me just read this for you quickly. It's Isaiah chapter 1 and verses 4 through 6. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on Him. Now listen, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. So here is a picture of us by nature. Because of sin, it's as it were we are covered with sores and wounds from top to bottom. It's like a raging infection that is going through our system, which breaks out in these ugly sores and wounds. Where is healing going to come? It is through the wounds of Jesus. It's as it were the wounds of Jesus meeting our wounds of sin and bringing healing because of what he endured. And let me just stress one more point that always stuns me, and I touched on this last week. When I said that our only remedy is that Jesus persevered through his suffering to the end, do you remember what I said if you were here? I had mentioned the fact that Jesus could have, if he had wanted to, he could have called upon 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him right there on the spot. And even more, I said that Jesus, as God, as the Son of God, had power within him. If he wanted to, he could have simply spoken a word, and those lictors, those soldiers, those persecuting and oppressing him could have been eliminated right then and there. And the irony is that those lictors, those probably those burly, uh, muscular men who were able to, uh, to do this kind of thing, the irony is they couldn't have even moved one muscle unless Jesus as the Son of God with creative, sustaining power had permitted it. That's incredible to me. And yet Jesus willingly endured this and everything right to the very end, all of the other wounds that came his way, and finally death itself that we might be delivered. 
And oh, I pray that all of us this morning might bless God because we have seen the truth that this is the answer to our sin and we've been able to own the answer for our lives. May it be so. But then one other point I want to bring out briefly is this. May this discouraging picture for us the reality of God's presence with his children crippled by pain. You know, I think we've all had discussions with people in the past about how can there be this kind of a world and there be a God? All the suffering and the pain that doesn't make sense. How do we answer that? Not easily, by any means. I, there, are, there are certain things we can and should say. We can talk about we live in a world, we have free moral agents, people make decisions, and pain and a lot of pain and suffering comes as a result of that. We can talk about the fact that we live in a fallen world where at the very beginning there was the rebellion against God and at the beginning, and this has led to a fallen world condition with pain and suffering, we could say that. But you know, one of the things that I think we can often turn to, and that's helped me when I've discussed it with others, and maybe, maybe you yourself are struggling with this too, is to bring the cross into the picture bring what happened to God himself. You see, Christianity is the only religion which has a God who cared enough to become man and die. There was a, an English writer by the name of Dorothy Sayers who put it in and what I'm about to read might seem kind of uh, shocking in one way to you, but yet um, I think you'll get the point. She's talking about this issue of suffering, but then she's connecting to it the reality of God coming into the world in the person of Jesus, his suffering. Listen to her words. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing, he's playing, whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself have, has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. Do you see what this is getting at? And say, whatever, whatever mysteries, and there are many mysteries connected with the reality of sin and suffering in this world, we have a God who came into this world and immersed himself in the human condition and took on himself pain and suffering to the extreme. And that is utterly stunning. What does this mean then, my friends? This means that by taking it on himself, Jesus, in a sense, has dignified pain. 
of all the kinds of lives he could have lived, he chose a suffering one. And because of Jesus, therefore, I cannot say that suffering and death must mean God has forsaken us and he's left us alone to self-destruct. Some of you here, my friends, some of you know almost continual physical pain. And you're sitting in your pew this morning and you are enduring, enduring me, well, you're enduring the pain. The pain is there. And it's your companion, hour in and hour out. But may you be reminded this morning that Jesus knew what it was like to have nerves that screamed with pain. He knew and he knows the end of physical suffering. And he is with you. He is with you. Whatever other questions we might have, child of God, son, daughter of God, he is with you. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. May you hear that word this morning. So by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed, wrote Isaiah. Healing through wounding, wholeness through brokenness, that's the way of the cross. That's the way of Jesus. This is the method of what we might call an upside-down kingdom, but it's the true kingdom whose king suffers and dies for subjects like us. Amen. Friends, let's pr